0: What if they develop a vaccine that only protects the person getting the vaccination from getting the illness, but it doesn't prevent the spread of the virus and the spread of the illness to those people who haven't been vaccinated? It presents interesting moral and legal questions that we'll be talking about today on The Der Show. There actually is life beyond the dispute over the current election. Of course, all the media are focused on, is Rudy Giuliani going to make this argument? How is he feeling? Uh, By the way, I wish him well in his bout with uh, COVID. Uh, Are the lawyers in uh, Georgia going to create enough doubt or raise evidence? that's, That's what we're hearing about primarily on the media. But most Americans aren't thinking as much about that as they are about um, COVID and about what's going on in the world uh, outside and around them and how many people are sick and how many people are dying. And And so this morning, I really want to talk about the vaccines that are likely to be made available within the next few weeks, possibly. Already, some are made available in England, in Russia. We're not sure we trust the Russian um, medical experimentation and whether or not the scientific basis is accurate. England, we obviously trust more. But uh, soon, uh, there are going to be hard decisions to make in the United States. And this morning, I want to talk about one possible ethical question that may come up, and also a legal question. And I really want your advice on it. I was surprised to read in a very distinguished Uh, magazine of science, um, the following description of the vaccines that are most likely to be used in the United States over the next weeks and months. And here's what the article says. All three of the vaccines have been tested in large clinical trials and have shown promise in preventing disease symptoms. Good news. Now let's get to the troubling part of it that raises the Problem, the ethical problem and legal problem that I want to focus on today. But none, none of these vaccines has demonstrated that it prevents infection altogether or reduces the spread of disease in a population. This leaves open the chance that those who are vaccinated could remain susceptible to asymptomatic infection. And this is the crucial point. And could transmit that infection to others who remain vulnerable. And then they quote a distinguished professor of uh, virology. In the worst case scenario, you have people walking around feeling fine, but shedding virus everywhere. So that's the question I want to raise with you, my listeners and viewers today. Since I'm a law professor, I want to put it in hypothetical form and I want to state it in the extreme to begin with, and then we can break it down and think about how the extremes will really operate. Let's assume, hypothetically, that we develop a vaccine that is 100% perfect with no side effects, 100% perfect in preventing the person who gets the injection from ever getting COVID 19. In other words, it's 100% effective in protecting you, if you get the vaccine, from getting COVID-19 and having to go on a respirator and possibly dying. Sounds great. But let's also assume it provides zero protection against you transmitting the disease to other people. In other words, you'll never get sick. You'll be able to walk around. But you have the virus. The virus under the vaccine just doesn't become the illness. So you have the virus, you're walking around with the virus, you have no symptoms, you'll never get sick, you're immunized from the sickness, but anybody you come in contact with and breathe on and come close to, you might transmit the disease to them. So that's my hypothetical, 100% perfect in preventing the person who gets the injection, The person who gets the vaccine from getting the illness, zero effective in preventing the spread to other people. Two questions. One, do you allow such a vaccine to be administered? The obvious answer is yes. Uh, Why not let the people who take the vaccine get protected? But what if the end result is, say, half the people get the vaccine and another half of the people don't want to get the vaccine? For example, a recent article showed that about half the people in the New York City Fire Department said they don't, they don't want to get the vaccine. Uh, some of them have already had COVID, so maybe they have a degree of immunity, but others just, they're either anti-vaxxers or they're concerned about this. So let's assume that you get a situation where half the people get the vaccine. They're all fine. They're not going to die. They're fine. They're, they can go about their business. But as a result of that, it increases the amount of spread of the disease much more widely among the 50% who didn't get it. Because the 50% who are now safe, they have less of an incentive to wear masks, to close their businesses, to socially distance. Uh, I'm hypothesizing a selfish population, a population that says, look, I I can't get it anymore, so what what do I care? If strangers get it, obviously they'll be careful with their family. Again, to make the hypothetical even sharper, everybody in the family gets it. So you're not worried about your family. You're not worried about your friends, but you just want to go on life as usual because you're now vaccinated. You're now immune, but you're spreading the disease. You're now typhoid Mary and you're dangerous. Uh, So should we allow that phenomenon to occur as a matter of public health? There are two sides to that argument. From a medical point of view, personal medical point of view, nobody should be denied medication that will help prevent them from getting an illness. For from a public health point of view, what if it spreads the illness even further? Well, you can argue, that's not your fault. You took the vaccine. All the other folks can take the vaccine too. If they don't want to take the vaccine, hey, that's their problem. Well, it's not so easy. What if the situation where you get the vaccine early because you're old um, or you have preconditions and the other's want the vaccine. They're not anti-vaxxers. They're just low on the list. I think I mentioned the other day, my wife and I checked and I don't know, I'm very high on the list because I'm 82 years old and I have conditions. And so I'm like 700th on the list, which means I'll get it very quickly. And My wife is like 20,000th on the list. So you have a situation where some people will get it early. They will be Immune, They'll be able to walk around safely. Don't worry, I'm not going to get it. And then they will spread it more widely to people who want to get the vaccine, but can't get it because they're low on the list. So it is a serious ethical and moral question. I think it will be resolved by allowing the vaccine to go forward and 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 hoping that maybe we can develop either a supplementary vaccine or maybe the vaccine will not be zero effective in transmitting. Maybe it'll be 30%, 40%. It's all going to be a matter of degree. That's the difference between hypotheticals and reality. In hypotheticals, you can manipulate the numbers to make them say anything you want. In reality, you're stuck with what is out there and what what will actually happen. So that's one issue. I want your advice on that. Should you be able to get a vaccine that will prevent you from getting the illness, but make you more likely to spread it to others? Now, your answer might be, look, if I get the vaccine, I'm not going around spreading it to others. I'm a good guy. I'm a good citizen. I don't spread diseases. Yeah, that's true of you and me, but it isn't true of everybody in the society. We know there'll be some who will take a very selfish attitude. Uh, vaccine for me, but not for thee. Uh, I have it. That's fine. If you don't have it, that's your problem. I'm not going to stop going to restaurants. I'm not going to stop going to concerts. I'm not going to wear masks just because it will help you. I'm safe. I'm okay. So I want your advice as to whether that should be permitted. Some people to get the vaccine and spread it to others who don't have the vaccine. That's question one. Question two is a much more Serious uh, one and much more legal one. Let's assume the vaccine only protects you. In other words, it's like a, max, a vaccine for a heart attack or a vaccine for cancer. Uh, let's assume hypothetically there is a vaccine you can take will prevent you from getting cancer. Cancer is not contagious; it has no effect on other people. Of course, I'd want to take the vaccine if it stops me from getting cancer. But the question is, under the law. Under the Constitution, can the government compel me to take a vaccine that only helps me, that doesn't help other people in the public? Or do I have a right to be an anti-vaxxer under those circumstances when the vaccine only helps me? And I think the answer to that constitutionally has to be, if it's only designed to help you and not public health measures, probably you do have a right to refuse to take it. It would be stupid It would be foolish. It would be suicidal, maybe even. But I don't think the state has the right to compel you to take medical steps that are designed only to help you if they don't also help the public. Now, in real life, it'll probably turn out that it helps the public somewhat. Even if it doesn't help the public a lot, it will help them somewhat. So there'll be a public health argument for compelled vaccines. But I want to stick to the hypothetical for a moment. 100% effective in stopping you from getting the illness, zero effective in helping others not get the illness. Could the state compel that? I think the answer to that may very well be no. Now, there are some good arguments on the other side. Number one, you want kind of herd immunity, so the more people that get it, the better. All those arguments. Second, hospitals are filling. Uh, Ventilators are in short supply. Isn't there a public health argument in preventing you from getting it, even if you don't aren't prevented from spreading it to other people? Well, you can make that same argument about strokes and heart attacks in some communities. If the hospitals are filled with stroke and heart attack victims, it costs the society a lot of money. Uh, it prevents other people from getting treatment. But generally, that hasn't been enough to justify compelled medical treatment. I mean, we have these cases. You know, there are groups of religious people, Jehovah's Witnesses particularly, that refuse blood transfusions, Christian scientists, that refuse other kinds of medical treatment. And the general law generally is that the state can't compel you to take medical treatment over your objection if you're a competent adult. If you're a child, the law is different. Uh, There are still arguments, hey, it's my child, I'm entitled to bring that child up in my religion, my religion for a visit. Usually the courts rule against the parents in those cases and require the child to get life-saving medical intervention. But uh, uh, you also have to be competent. If you're in a mental hospital, if you're senile, uh, etc., the state may compel you to take uh, measures that are designed only for your own good. We're going to see these challenges. Um, And this new data is going to be very, very powerful ammunition for not only the anti vaxxers, that's an extreme group, that's a group that says we don't want any vaccinations under any circumstances, period. But it will also give ammunition to more thoughtful people, more moderate people who say, look, we're not anti vaccination, we just don't want to be vaccinated. Without there being a two-year or three-year study, we're not sure. Uh, We have the ability to live isolated. Um, We don't really want to do it. Maybe we've had the illness, and therefore, we think we have some immunity. So there will be many who will refuse to take the vaccine. And then the question arises, the state will come in and compel them to do it. Generally, the state wins. But if the other side comes in and says, wait a minute, this is a vaccination That only helps the person receiving it, so what you're doing is compelling me to do something for my own good. The great British philosopher John Stuart Mill uh, wrote uh, on liberty and uh, a group of other famous and very influential books that really set out the criteria for what most liberals, and I don't mean liberal in the liberal-conservative sense, but liberals, people who believe in liberty, uh, 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 support And John Stuart Mill's philosophy was the state can only compel you to do things that are in the interests of other people in the state, but they can't compel you to do things for yourself just because it will help you, just because it will be good for you. Uh, I don't know how we would come out on the vaccinations. Obviously, they weren't really widely available in the middle of the 19th century when Mill was writing, but... Mill has been very influential on the Supreme Court and other court decisions, obviously, in teaching people how to think about these issues. And so the distinction between medical procedures that help you alone and medical procedures that help other people, you know, put it in a more common example, uh, seatbelts. We have laws today that compel you to wear seatbelts. Now, seatbelts don't protect other people. They just protect you. Uh, oh, my colleague Larry Tribe a long time ago wrote an article saying seat belts really are designed to protect other people because if you're in a crash, you could fly through the window and become a missile and hurt other people. A little bit of a stretch. The basic reason we have seatbelt laws are to protect you from being killed if your car crashes. It straps you in. It prevents your head from hitting the hard surface, and it's good for you. Can you be compelled to do that? The law says yes. Why? I've written about this. I've talked about not the heavy thumb of the law, which would basically put you in jail for not wearing your seatbelt, but the light pinky of the law that says, unless you wear a seatbelt, you get a $50 fine. It just encourages people to do the right thing for themselves. So, you know, we don't live in an absolute John Stuart Mill world. We do compel the wearing of seatbelts. We do compel... Uh, people to wear helmets in certain circumstances. Uh, Maybe more should be done about that. Bicycle riders and uh, motorcycle riders wearing uh, helmets. Those are all designed to help you yourself, not to help other people. It's a complex problem, and it's a problem that I want your opinion on. So, number one, should the vaccine be made available if it doesn't help spread the disease? Number two, should vaccination be compelled If the primary purpose of the vaccine is to prevent the recipient of the vaccine from getting sick, but it doesn't have a significant impact on spreading the disease. Okay, that's the question for today. Before we uh, conclude, just a few items of news. Obviously, we have to get back to the election a a, a little bit. I was reading over the weekend the history of the Tilden Hayes election in uh, 1876. Um, The very popular President Grant decides not to run for uh, re-election, a third term. No president up to that point had ever run for a third term. Washington said two is enough until Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Nobody ever ran for a third term. There was a lot of pressure on Grant to run for a third term because we were living in the post-Civil War era, Reconstruction, etc. He decides not to run, and so um, Tilden, the governor of New York, runs against uh, Hayes, a congressman from Ohio, I think. It's a very close election, and um, Tilden wins the popular vote, and it looks like he may have a majority in the electoral vote, but he doesn't hit the, in those days it was not 270, but he doesn't hit the 270 mark. He doesn't get a a majority, and there's all kinds of fights and and arguments, and some delegations, some states send two delegations of electors, one that was for Tilden, one that was for Hayes. Ultimately, Congress appoints a commission of four justices, five justices of the Supreme Court, members of Congress, members of the Senate, and they come to a compromise and they elect uh, Hayes uh, in exchange for the promise uh, to end Reconstruction. Terrible deal, terrible deal. But when I read the history, it was so much like what's going on today. Uh, Very creative constitutional challenges, mostly not backed by the numbers or or the evidence, but theoretically possible under the Constitution. So that's where we are today. Uh, Biden will be the next president of the United States. I do not believe there will be enough uh, challenged votes to erase the margin of victory for Biden in the key states of Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, uh, Georgia, Nevada, Arizona. Uh, There may be some challenges in Georgia. Maybe some legislatures will take action. Who knows? And we don't know the answer to the hard constitutional question. This is going to surprise you, but under the Constitution— a state can deny voters the right to vote for president yeah a state could simply say uh last september we don't trust the people we don't like the people we don't we're not we don't believe in democracy we the state legislature we're going to pick uh 12 electors that we think are the wisest people in the state and we're going to send them to washington theoretically there's nothing in the text of the constitution that would permit prohibit that obviously it would never be done because they'd throw the bums out of office. I mean, who, who would elect state legislatures that would deny you the right to vote for who the president of the United States should be, even through the mechanism of the Electoral College? So um, there's uh, that, that issue. Uh, but what about if a state, say Georgia, legislature, dominated by Republicans, were to say, look, there's been an election. We, we thought we trusted the people. Uh, we thought we trusted the electoral system. We've now heard from Rudy Giuliani and others, correct or not correct, we're not sure, but uh, we have some doubts about the validity of the vote, uh, about the validity of, uh, of, of ballots that came in late. So, you know, what we're going to do, we're going to pick the, the 12 electors and we're going to send them to the um, House of Representatives and the Senate on December 14th and let them cast the vote. Would that be constitutional? I don't think so. Uh Whatever the rights of the state legislatures to pick electors before the people vote, I don't believe that any court would sustain their right to substitute their own electors for electors chosen by a vote of the people, even if the vote of the people was challenged and had some corruption. The problem with, among many, with the um, lawyers who are arguing for Trump is not only don't they have the numbers? They don't seem to have the numbers. Uh, and there's questions about the evidence and the timing and whether the clock is ticking or whether they can get it done. Uh, so it's it's just not at all uh, clear that there is an actual route to um, changing the election. As I've said before on this show and on other media appearances that I've been in, there's a big difference between the theoretical vo- road. There is a the- There's always a theoretical road because the Constitution provides for all kinds of approaches uh, that are not inconsistent with the text of the Constitution. But for it to happen, you'd need the perfect storm. You'd need the numbers on your side. They don't seem to have them. You'd need an opportunity to present the evidence Uh, subject to cross-examination. I don't think they have the time to do that. You'd need state legislatures voting to reject the slate picked by the people and substitute their own slate. I don't think that's going to happen. And you'd need the courts, ultimately the Supreme Court, to say that's a constitutionally permissible route, even if it's done after the election. So I don't think it's going to happen. But if I were teaching at Harvard, believe me, I'd be teaching a seminar – On the constitutional issues and the creative approach to some of these constitutional issues being raised in this election. And let me be very clear if the shoe were on the other foot, if the election had gone the other way and it was the Democrats who were challenging, same kind of arguments would be raised, the same kind of evidence would be presented. There's no more virtue on one side than on the other when it comes to trying to win elections. In the Tilden Hayes election, Both the Democrats and the Republicans played really, really dirty and ended up making all kinds of corrupt deals. The same was true in the Jackson election against John Quincy Adams. Uh, We live in a society where politics is a blood sport and people take arguments to their extremes. And speaking of extremes, a commercial. Uh, I have a new book out, it's called Cancel Culture. And it's all about the extremes, the extremes of what happens when you try to cancel people, deny them free speech, deny them due process, and think you know the truth without any need for any process to be undertaken. It's a short book. It's only 150 or so pages. It also has a list of all the people that have been canceled. It's a very interesting list. The New York Times this weekend had an article saying cancel culture is nonsense. It's not true. No prominent people have ever been canceled. It's false. And you read in my book how many prominent people have been canceled by the so-called canceled culture, which is, in my view, a form of woke McCarthyism. And so I rail against the cancel culture in the book, and I prove how dangerous it is, unlike the New York Times, which just asserts, hey, it can't be so dangerous because the left is doing it. Uh, That's not the way I think. It's not the way I think my listeners and viewers think. So I want to have your points of view. I want to have your points of view on the COVID uh, situation and the potential for a, a vaccination that only protects the person getting the vaccination but not others in a public health sense. I want your views on the strategies and tactics being used uh, in the last part of this election challenge. And if you have any views on cancel culture, uh, let me have those as well. Let's turn now to our listeners and viewers and your questions. By the way, I love your questions, but you have to keep them short. We've gotten a lot of terrific questions, but they're as long as the show. I mean, you can't expect me to put on... The Durr Show, a 10-minute question, which is really as if you're one of my guests. If you want to be one of my guests, fine. Let's arrange that, and maybe you can be a guest on the show. But when you ask a question, keep it under a minute, please. And uh, it doesn't have to be a question. It can be a comment. It can be an accusation. But keep it under a minute so we can put a lot of those questions on the air because it's my favorite part of the show. It's the wits that ends the Durr Show. And you guys have the wits, you guys have the intelligence and the, and, the, and, and the smarts. And so let's turn to your questions and your comments right now on The Dare Show. Remember in the last show, I asked about the ethical issues of people who were part of the test group but got placebos, whether they should now be told they had placebos and get to the top of the list to get the vaccine. So I'm interested in your views on that and other subjects. So what's your point?
1: Hey, Professor Dershowitz. My name is Adam, and I'm from Toronto, Canada. In response to your question about whether people who took, the pla- who took the placebo vaccine should have first priority, I don't think they should. I don't think someone who voluntarily signed up to take part in a study where they knowingly may not get the vaccine should get priority. If a participant in the study would naturally be 30,000th on the priority list, I think it would be unethical for them to get the vaccine before anyone else, even if they made it possible for others to take it. I wouldn't mind if those who got the placebo vaccine were given first priority if there was not enough people to take part in the study. But since participation in the study was voluntary and there was no promise that participants would get the vaccine prior to anyone else, I can only assume that the study was not lacking participants. Take care.
0: That's a great point. And I think I generally tend to agree with what you've said. Look, maybe if people weren't volunteering... They could, as an inducement, promise to take them off the placebo list and put them on the top of the actual vaccine list. But as you say, they didn't have to do that. There were plenty of people who did volunteer, including a very close friend of mine, Rabbi Avi Weiss, uh, in in New York. Uh, Takes a lot of courage to be part of that group. And I don't know whether he was a placebo or an actual. I don't know whether he knows. But uh, your point is well taken. The next call is from Florida. Anthony? Calling about
2: the uh, medical dilemma that you pose concerning the group of uh, placebo volunteers for the COVID vaccine. Um, To help you off the horns of this particular dilemma, um, I would suggest that the overriding principle is that the uh, volunteers are not disadvantaged in any way relative to the rest of society. Mm -hmm. In other words... They should stay in the experiment, but as soon as the vaccine is declared as usable by the FDA, usable for society as a whole, they should immediately be given the option of having the vaccine and uh, should be given the option of having the vaccine immediately uh, in deference to their uh, good act of volunteering in this medical experiment. Mm-hmm. So I don't think the dilemma is too difficult in that respect. Just as a parting shot, I think there are more medical conundrums coming on the way uh, concerning the order of uh, distribution of the uh, vaccine. And uh, I can see a lot of queue jumping and uh, black market activities and a lot of questions uh, coming up over the horizon uh, with respect to that thanks it's a great show and i have to be one of your biggest fans thank you so much
0: well thank you that's a great point there will be other issues coming up ethical issues moral issues legal issues and this will be a central place to discuss them um i'll give you my opinion then i want to hear uh your opinion uh, as, as far as your suggestion as soon as the vaccine proves valid getting them out of the placebo group and into the group of getting the vaccine. The problem is the experiment was designed both for short-term and long-term, and it would benefit from people staying in their position, placebo or real, for as much as two years. And that may be too long, and it may be putting the people who volunteered at a real disadvantage. They would have to stay for more than a year as placebos and at risk, therefore, when they could be getting the vaccine. And if they're allowed to get the vaccine, then the two-year aspect of the study is made impossible. I suggested that, you know, all the people who had the placebo uh, be told about it at some point and be given the option of remaining in the study for two years if they want to. And if there were enough of those, that would be okay. Uh, uh, Or um, getting the vaccine. The other possibility is to just take a whole group of people who are anti-vaxxers who don't want to have the vaccination and ask them to come into the study so that they can be the control group. It wouldn't be perfect because they're not exactly a control group the way scientists create control groups. There's no perfect solution, but uh, your idea is an interesting one. Thanks. Our next call is from Mark in Michigan.
3: Hello, Professor. It's Mark in Detroit. Great show tonight. It's Friday night. Um, On the issue of the vaccine, I found interesting you're talking about the polio parallel and, um, you know, giving the actual medicine to people who are getting placebo, you brought up the point about using the anti-vaxxers because they don't care anyways, they don't
1: believe in it, uh,
3: and so forth. But why would the anti-vaxxers get involved and take the placebo if that advanced the overall experiment and got it done? Your logic didn't seem to be consistent. Uh, Even though they don't believe in it, they're still helping the, the eventual... Uh, support of the vaccine coming to market so anyways great show keep up the good work good job Ed.
0: well thanks it's a good point of course you don't have to give people the placebo for them to be part of an experiment you just don't give them the vaccine and follow them and see how they compare to the people who've gotten the vaccine so they don't have to be active cooperators or participants also you're going to find some anti-vaxxers at least that say look we think vaccination is wrong But we're perfectly happy to participate in an experiment which we think will show we're right. Um, Whether or not they would be adequate um, control group raises uh, a scientific uh, question. But look, these are fascinating issues. The object of this show is to convince viewers, or maybe you're already convinced, that life's complicated and nuanced And the extremes of black and white, Democrat, Republican, Trump, anti-Trump, that we live in, the world we live in today is not that, it's not a real world, Uh, the world of extremes. We have to go back to a time when we can have rational discussions. Again, I'm going to mention my book, Cancel Culture. Uh, That's all about that. It's a call for moderation, a call for nuance, a call for... Uh, coming in and, and, and thinking hard about complicated issues and possible compromise solutions. So, um, uh, these calls all reflect that kind of nuance. So, I really appreciate my callers and viewers. Thank you. Our next call is from Benji.
3: My name is Benji Spiro. I live in Los Angeles, California. I am a participant in the Pfizer trial. Uh, my wife and I both participated. Um, due to our antibody studies, which we did outside of the trial, we have determined that I received the vaccine and my wife received the placebo. My wife is actually a frontline worker and works at um, our local hospital as a nurse in our maternal fetal care unit. I found your discussion to be very interesting about the vaccine and what to do in the next steps. Um, it is a really hard decision whether you should have these people continue the trial or whether they are entitled to the vaccine. When we um, enrolled in the trial in the summer, uh, we were told with reasonable confidence that the study would become unblinded once approved and that the placebo participants will be given the vaccine. That is still um undetermined yet. It will depend on if the FDA approves it, which we assume it will. The next part is that the trial is a volunteer trial. Um, at any point in the process, whether you're one week in or two years in, you're allowed to leave the trial at any point. You are not required to be part of the trial. Um, at one point we considered no longer participating in it and they encouraged us to stay because it will help with science, but respected our wishes and we wanted to leave. The reason why we wanted to leave is um, they required a follow up visit um if you were sick um, even if you tested negative for covid and since the facility was forty five minutes away and it's a half an hour test and forty five minutes back, it's an inconvenience for Um, us and that's why we considered leaving and they were completely fine with us leaving if we wanted to. So anyway the study is not required for you to stay in the trial. Obviously it's extremely helpful if you do but I think that could solve the problem Um, but I do feel that it is is an interesting dilemma and um, I appreciate that you brought it onto the show.
0: Well, first of all, thank you for calling, and second, thank you for volunteering. Uh, I don't know whether you stayed in or didn't. I know you considered leaving, but you didn't tell us whether you stayed in. That could be a, an issue of privacy that you want to keep to yourself, and you, you're you entitled to do that. Um, you say that um, you have the right to leave. Uh, sure, sure you do. You have a right to leave, but uh, the question I raised is if you decide to stay Uh, can you be given the vaccine and be jumped to the beginning of the line? That's still a a hard question, because if you leave, then you're just put in the regular queue. And if you're a young person, you sound like you are. With no pre-existing conditions, you may be a long, long time in getting it, and therefore you're not getting rewarded for your participation in the study. But you've left the study, so maybe that's not something you're entitled to. Again, Complicated questions, but thank you. It's always good to hear from a participant who has real life experience in being part of a study that may change the world. So thank you for being part of that very important study. We now have Ruvain. I think, Ruvain, you've called before from New York. Regarding your question
4: of the the ethical issue of keeping the vaccine for people who got the placebo, I'm actually very interested in it because I'm a journalist myself. And I actually interviewed. Someone who was in the Pfizer study, uh, he knows that he got the actual vaccine and his wife who did the study also got the placebo because uh, later on he took antibody tests and he was positive his wife was, ne- his wife was negative. But I just wanted to comment, your proposed solution was to take 500 anti give them the placebo and um, see how, how it works uh, for them. Uh, that wouldn't work because uh, the whole point of a placebo is that it's blind. Uh, Once they know they're getting the placebo, there's really no point in giving them the placebo, right? You could just uh, simply follow them. Uh, Giving a placebo to someone who knows they're getting the placebo is the same thing as just saying we're not giving you anything at all. There's no point in bothering to give them the placebo, and you just follow them. But you would not have the benefit of the blind element.
0: I completely agree. I think I mentioned that last week, that if you just took people out in the population, you don't have to give them anything. They're just out there. And so I think you're right. It does eliminate the double-blind element part of it. I'm not sure how important the double-blind element is in an experiment like this, but I leave that to the scientists. Thanks for your great call. Our next call, our last call for today, is from the District of Columbia.
1: Hey, Alan. This is Phil in D.C. Uh, just was calling in to uh, comment on your question about this placebo and vaccine question. Um, I definitely don't agree with your potential suggestion to call up or inform the folks that were given the placebo to give them the option to opt out That seems uh, very counterintuitive to me. I think the whole point of this research and other research efforts to test variables and controls is to to verify between these two groups what are what are the differences between the folks that were actually vaccinated and not vaccinated in terms of side effects and efficacy and uh, and i, and I I wouldn't want to undermine that. I think the only potential solution you could have for that, and I'm sure this is something the researchers have considered and probably implemented, is uh, having an opt-out option for everybody at any time to find out uh, what, you know, whether they had placebo or not. Uh, I think it it would be uh, uh, potentially a solution, your, your suggestion of informing the placebo folks, if we were some sort of colony on Mars, 2,000 folks on Mars, and uh, this is a dwindling population, we have to save the most uh, based on a small amount of data. But this, this isn't that case. And so I think we're, this research is something that should be used to inspire confidence in the veracity of data that comes from this research. And so uh, considering that this is a vaccine that's rapidly undergoing development and is going to go on, out to millions of people, uh, I think that probably having um, these folks undergo this placebo and vaccination uh, research is, is a good thing. And um, have it, ha- trying to call up the placebo folks to potentially have them opt out might be uh, inimical to th- that research. Thanks so much for the show. Appreciate uh, everything that y- you're doing.
0: Well, thank you. I think you make a good point. But uh, what about the following? Let's assume You don't tell the people who are in the placebo they've had the placebo, but you do announce that the vaccine is successful. At that point, I think a lot of people in the study who worry that they may be in the placebo group would voluntarily drop out and say, wait a minute, the vaccine's effective. We may not have gotten it. Why should we stay in the study when we don't know? So let's opt out now and get the vaccine. So that's a problem, too. Look, again, there's no perfect solution. When you have difficult ethical dilemmas and scientific dilemmas like this one, you're always going to have imperfection in the results. I agree completely from a scientific point of view. The best result would be keep everything clear, double blind, placebo people stay with the placebo for two years. The people who got the vaccine stay for two years. We see side effects. We see everything. We see total control. That's the ideal. But we live in a world where ideals aren't always possible. People are dying of, um, of the disease. What would happen if uh, one of the placebo people, uh, after the vaccine, was completely validated and developed, uh, say after six months but not the two years, somebody got very sick and died? Uh, people would feel terrible about that. They could have lived had they gotten the vaccine. So, again, no perfect solution, but we're not looking for perfection. Uh, The perfect is the enemy of the good, and we need to get the best possible solution to a problem that's killing so many Americans and so many people around the world. Look, you have to really take off your hat. Big pharma is attacked all the time, always attacked, greedy, etc., etc. What the pharmacological industry has done in a relatively short period of time is nothing short of a miracle. If this works and this can stop the worst pandemic in at least 100 years, we'd have to all take our hats off to the pharmacology industry and praise them for what they've done. Whether they were motivated by profit or motivated by doing good, we're not God. We're not there to psychoanalyze them. We're there to encourage them and encourage uh, science to make progress in preventing illnesses. We want to make sure that every possible illness can be approached in a creative way to stop it from spreading or stop it from hurting the people who get it. I think whenever you develop a medical technology that reduces the illness, reduces the disease, reduces the mortality, the morbidity. That's a plus. And so three cheers uh, for those who are working day and night to save our lives. Uh, We'll continue to talk about the virus because that's going to continue after the election is over and after the election is resolved. On January 21st, I suspect we will still have issues relating to covid and we will be talking about them and probably not talking about the election. So whatever you're interested in, tune into The Dirt Show and call me and give me ideas of subjects that you think I should be discussing that perhaps we haven't discussed. Because I'm interested in you. I'm interested in your friends. I'm interested in you subscribing. And I'm interested in you calling in to The Dirt Show. Thank you. Please call 24-7. The number is 216 710 0050. Keep your comments short and to the point. Again, the number for you to call, 24/7, is 216-710-0050. Hard questions, criticisms, everything's fine. Just keep your questions short, and I'll answer them all on the Dirt Show.